Hey everyone, hi, hello, welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here with Sarah Schaefer, whom I last had on the podcast. I checked, September 30th, 2012. Wow. Some things have changed. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize it was that long ago. I know, I know. First of all, happy belated birthday. Thank you. You turned 40. I did. How are you feeling about it? I feel good. I feel like, I mean, it really was like a switch flipped of like... I'm okay. It's going to be okay. Were you uh, having mixed feelings about it ahead of time? No, I think it was just, no, I mean like in life. Mm -hmm. It was like the moment I turned 40, it was just like I took a deep breath and was like, it's it's fine. Everything's fine. So when I last talked to you, um, your MTV show with Nikki Glaser, you guys were in the process of doing that and it hadn't aired yet. Yeah. and at that, we were talking a lot about some bitterness we felt towards the industry. Yeah. Um, and w- I'm wondering, where are you with all of that now? Um, well, I don't remember the specifics. Um, <laughs> uh, but I feel that was, gosh, it was right before a really, really, the biggest moment in mm. my career happening was that TV show. Um, in terms of outwardly big, you know. Right. Um and it was such an adventure. Nikki and I are now, it's been long enough now. It's like five years have passed and we're like starting to feel very nostalgic about that time. And we'll send pictures and things back and forth to each other. And be like, remember when that happened? And it, it was really stressful and crazy. It was awesome. Um, and then after I had like a real crash down just emotionally and mentally, I think I'd been working so hard for so long and I moved to LA and I had a really hard year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been sort of a, I wouldn't say, I, and I wouldn't even say it was a crash down. It was just like a, I got up on a plateau and was there and didn't know what was next mm-hmm. and or how to did you, do that. Did you feel like, because what your dream, what you said on, when we mm. last talked, your dream was to have your own talk show. Yeah. And then you, you had your own talk yeah. show. Did you feel like, oh my God, it's all happening? Yeah. And it did happen. And it was awesome. And it was um, exciting in ways I did not anticipate. It was stressful in ways I did not anticipate. But uh, I learned so much. And um, we really made a show that we're both still very proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked on a lot of other shows since then. And I haven't been able to sell my own show again, but, um, and that was sort of my immediate goal. And afterwards was to sell, do something new, um, and did some pilots, wrote some pilot, you know, just around the block a lot after that and realized, wow, that was what Nikki and I did was really hard and rare. Uh (laughs) Um, and now I'm sort of in a really good place where, um, I've been on the road a lot. And you had like tons of sold out shows at Edinburgh, right? Yeah, I had a whole an entirely sold out run in Edinburgh, which I love. My advice to anyone doing Edinburgh, an American comedian, is like, you can 
spin whatever narrative you want when you come back, even if it was hell while you were there, because Americans don't understand what Edinburgh is. <laughs> so like my venue was 55 seats. So it's not like I sold out, right, you know, a huge theater every night for 28 nights. But that, given the size of a festival, even selling out 55 seats was a real challenge. Yeah. Um. So I felt very proud of that, but it was, you know, challenging and crazy and, but um, yeah, I've been going back and forth between being on the road and writing for shows and then doing a bunch of other things on the side, always have a million irons in the fire. And I feel very good now. I don't feel the panic I used to feel where I was like, where's my next paycheck coming from? Or where's the one after this one? Mm-hmm. Because I became very like after MTV, I was trying to get a new show off the ground and I didn't make any money for almost a year. And that was really scary. How were realizing. you? How were you getting by? I had savings from the MTV show, mm-hmm. um, and it, I made a little bit of money here and there, but nothing that would qualify as like what people would consider a yearly salary. So it took a while to sort of reorient and figure out. What, I was saying no to a lot of things um, because I think Nikki and I were being perceived as like because we did so much celebrity based stuff um, on our show. I think we were being, and I actually can't speak to what she was feeling, but I was feeling like I was getting a lot of offers um, and meetings for things like, we want you to be the sassy red carpet reporter for entertainment tonight. Mm. And you would and say I, no to that. Yeah. Cause I was like, that, we were making fun of you. Like, <laughs> and your version of funny is different than mine. And you're not going to like me. I can already tell. You know, uh, I'm going to want to make fun of this and you're going to want me to be cute and sincere and like flirt with a celebrity, which I would out flirt with celebrity, but (laughs) (laughs) Nikki and I did that a lot, but we were, it was always with an undertone of like, this is so stupid. Mm -hmm. Um, That's impressive to me that you had, have had and have that sense of your own point of view enough to turn down something of that. Yeah. I mean, I definitely... Um, realized after being on camera and, you know, I mean, I don't think I felt famous at any point, but I did get recognized a couple of times or whatever. Um, after being out there like that, I realized being famous is, I don't care about it at all. I mean, just not at all. And did you think you, it was something you wanted? Well, I thought, I think, you know, you go through phases. Like in high school, I wanted to be famous because I was, you know, <laughs> In high school. Right. Uh, in college, I wanted, it, it was still there. I wanted to be a star. Mm-hmm. There's a difference between famous and being a star. Um, what is the difference to you? Well, so you're a star because you're good at something. Famous could mean you could be famous for any reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was like at the, at the beginning of reality TV when I started to understand different types of fame. Right. Um, and then... I got to the point where I was like, no, I want to be famous for being funny and being getting a talk show and doing those that kind of famous. Now I'm like, Natty, I don't even care about that. Um, I would love to be have a higher profile in terms of power. Mm -hmm. You know, I want more power and I want more the ability to make things and hire people and be the boss. I really like that. So I've moved into sort of a new way of thinking about this business, which is like, I want to, you know, get mine. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been thinking about moving into more of a showrunner type position. Mm -hmm. And like, 
I think I, I've, I, for years people would tell me you would be a really good showrunner. And I would always go, no, I want to be in front of the camera. Um, but now I'm starting to realize like they were right. What do you think they saw in you that made them think um, that? I'm good at organizing and executing a vision and ha- I'm, I can multitask mm-hmm. and I can get a group of people and be like, this is what we're going to do. I can produce. I know how to do it. I did it on, I did, I've done it in a million different ways since I first started. Um, even when I was a little kid, I was a producer. I, I was in charge of producing the little show we would put on. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even really care about the performance so much as like the costumes and selling tickets and making signs and like putting it together. Like details. Is, yeah. Is what I like. And although I really, really, I, it's, I want to, I would definitely want to keep my stand up going because that level of performance I really love. And I think about back at Nikki and Sarah, I loved being on, I loved performing. I love, I, I loved being funny on camera. That really was awesome. And I would totally do it mm-hmm. <laughs> still, but it's really hard to convince people even if you've already been on camera a lot, to let you keep doing it. Well, that's what we were talking about way back when, because I had just had a general meeting and I, I, I listened to our episode and you mm-hmm. said something that I'm like, oh man, I got to tell my producer to clip that and play it anytime someone <laughs> mentions general meetings because you're like, generals, what is the point? Yeah. <laughs> but I had had one where I said I wanted to have a talk show and the guy like was like, oh, they don't, they only give household names talk shows. Mm-hmm. So that's what we were I've talking about. I've had that said to me too. Yeah. Um, and I just went around the block on a pitch. I mean, I think it's been almost over a year ago now. Um, and it was the pitch of a lifetime. I mean, I, I really believed in this idea. It was a hybrid talk show sort of docuseries mm-hmm. with me at the front. And, um, Everywhere I pitched was like, this was such a good pitch. We love you. And then it was no from everyone. Did they say why? Well, looking back, uh, I think it was two things. One, it was a little political, even though it wasn't outwardly political. It wasn't like I I was definitely not pitching a daily show Mm. or uh, Samantha B where I was going to be talking about specific political stories. It was more cultural in my mind, but everything feels political now. So Um, they're actually my... The sense I'm getting is that a lot of networks don't want political right now because they don't want to deal with how divisive everything feels. Um, And then also I came to find out that at that exact moment, Sarah Silverman was pitching the exact same show. Oh. And that wasn't going to work out for me. Um, And I actually even pitched it to Hulu after they had picked up her show and they weren't exactly sure what it was going to be yet. And at the end of the pitch, they were like, this is so similar to what Sarah's doing and your name is Sarah. (laughs) And I wanted to be, I wish I'd thought of this in the moment, but I wish I had, you know, when you think of the comeback, yeah, the comeback I should have said was, well, there's lots of Jimmy's with talk shows and nobody seems to care. That's so true. (laughs) So, but on the same network might be a little much, but uh, I, uh, (laughs) and I was just listening to her on uh, NPR yesterday talking about the show. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, so much of this thinking is how I was thinking about this show. Um, But I've reworked the pitch into something different now. Um, 
and I'm pitching it again. I mean, I'm like so done with it, mm-hmm. but it's with a really good company right? Um, that has some like star power behind it. So I'm like, okay, let's go around and try it again. Let's see what happens. So I... It's I say I kind of talk outwardly like, oh, I'm I'm fine not being on camera. I'm kind of done with that. I want to be in the I want to be in the, you know, the power chair um, behind the scenes. But I still have this pitch going that could become a thing. You know, Mm -hmm. like I I don't know what's going to happen. And I have a memoir coming out that could go in the direction of a scripted show because it's, you know, a story about my life. And, you know, so I I like to keep I don't want to say no to things that you know um there's so much in this business that is like you you set your verbal intention and then people start thinking of you that way Mm -hmm. so i'm always careful to be like well i'm not doing that anymore Mm -hmm. because then people like your reps or whatever will stop thinking of you in that light if you say it too much so i've always been like well i want to do this but i would totally do that too you know it's like i just like if it's me executing an idea I had, I want to do it. So if that involves me being on camera or not, I, it doesn't matter to mm-hmm. me. Was your MTV experience, I mean, it sounds like it was a good, satisfying experience. Because I've had many, not many, but I've had some on-camera experiences where I just, it's like that whole thing just felt, ugh. <laughs> it was just disappointing. No, right. I've had things like that too. This was, we had a really good team. Our showrunner, Kim Gamble, was awesome. Um, our staff was really, like, everyone talks about still, and I, 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 at least this is what I hear, I they could say something else behind my back, <laughs> but that everyone that worked on that show still looks upon it as, like, an amazing, fun time. Mm-hmm. We, every single person on the staff, I, I, I felt, was creatively involved in the show, um, it felt like a family in a real way. Nikki and I were very intent on not being monsters to people. Um, you can't try that. You can't try too hard to avoid being a monster because like at one point my assistant was like, you don't need to ask me to get you like if I mind getting you lunch every day. It's literally <laughs> my job. And I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, you know, I just had come from working very low down on talk shows mm-hmm. and, and not for monsters necessarily, but just um, knowing what it feels like to right. be very low on the totem pole. And I wanted everyone to feel valuable. Um, and I think that we did that. Everyone at the top felt that way. And so we had a very nice creative environment. Now on the other side of it, we had MTV, which was crazy making. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were so insane. And How I can so? say that freely <laughs> because <laughs> none of the people, like I don't, I, I again, I don't like to say never, but like I just don't know if I could ever work there again. Um, it was just, it was just a big corporate mess. You know, every department we came up against was broken in some way. There was a lot of lying, like, you know, you'd catch someone in a lie on an email. And it's like, why are you even lying about dumb shit? Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a lot of people who felt, there was a lot of behavior that felt like everyone was afraid they were going to be fired. Mm -hmm. And when you have an environment like that, you people act crazy. Right. And so there was a lot of that. And then on top of that, there was a shift in executives from the point that we pitched to the point that it was canceled. There was like three different people in charge then there was like multiple cooks in the kitchen above that. Like there were people way high up 
that we didn't never even met that were like commenting and giving notes on our wardrobe on just like lines we were saying. Mm. There was so much noting um, and changing of the directive every week. It was just really hard to keep up with yeah. and really infuriating. And we would be really frustrated. I mean, I would cry in my showrunner's office just like, I can't do this. And I know she thought I was crazy. <laughs> I mean, we're still friends, you know, and Nikki and I were so different. So it was like, we were all just, and it was really good that Nikki and I went through it together because I think we were able to keep each other from going totally insane. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that you guys were so different, like in what way? Well, like she was more carefree. I felt, I mean, I don't know how she would say it, but it to, from where I was sitting, she seemed to not be bogged down with the worries that I had about mm-hmm. certain things. And she'd be like, I'm going home. And I'd be in there like, what are we going to do about the thing, the shoot tomorrow? Like, right. and she was more carefree and, w- and willing to trust people above her to just take care of things where I was like, no, I need to know every detail. Mm. And I was, you know, more worried about, you know, everyone else's happiness. And she was a little more like, it's fine. and so so in that way it it was good because i was i would dot the i's and cross the t's and that you need someone you need someone at the top to care that much Mm -hmm. and then she would be more carefree and keep me from becoming too psycho about it Mm -hmm. you know and then i would kind of keep her like okay we need to be here at whatever time in the morning you know like do you think the crazy making affected your performance No, I think that we were really good at compartmentalizing that stuff. I mean, there were times where we would be crying about something or it sounds like we were crying all the time, but like (laughs) upset about something that we couldn't control, like right before going on camera. Would it be something like like they're saying you can't do a certain thing or like change? We have to change this. Right. You can't say that, Um, you know, things we thought were really funny or that or they would just you know i mean i got really upset about my wardrobe at one point because they kept putting me in like the more butch type outfits like (laughs) pants and like blouses and stuff Mm -hmm. and nikki would be in short dresses and like you know it's so stupid looking back on it now but i was like it made me mad because i was like what are you who do you think i am and i was it was like i'm 35 and you're trying to control what i look like and i'm like i know this is a network for teenage girls but we we have a really skilled stylist. Like you don't. This was an executive at at MTV who was like really involved in what we wore. Right. And it was like I had to take. Oh him. yeah, that drove me insane. And the showrunner like made us talk, and I was like, it was literally like right before we were about to go on on for our show, and I, and he was like, what's the problem? And I was like, look at me. I don't like this outfit. He was like, well, I just thought it's what looked good next to. Me. I'm like, why are you even concerned about this? Yeah. And I said, I stood up to him. That was another thing. It was like trying to figure out which battles to pick mm-hmm. would make me insane. Because I'd be like, I feel like I'm being a diva. I was so afraid of coming across like a diva. But in this case, it was just, it was more control thing. It had nothing to do with what I was actually wearing. Right. Who cares? I looked really pretty on every, I mean, that's what I always said to Nikki. I was like, MTV would not allow ugly people on their <laughs> network unless they were like being made fun of. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so just know that we we fit at least a minimum standard of attractiveness <laughs> because of what the kind of network MTV is. Um, 
So I just was like, I'm 35. I can dress myself. We have professionals helping us. If for some reason you ever see me in something that you think is like making us look, making the network look bad, you can talk to me. And then after that, he like stayed out of it. Well, that's amazing. So, you know, that was like halfway through season two. Right. (laughs) You know, Um, but yeah, so there was just a lot of that kind of stuff. But we really worked hard to maintain professionalism and our chemistry on camera at all times. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud of that. Um, Do you consider yourself a people pleaser? Oh, yeah. I mean, to the point where it's fucked with my life. You know, I wouldn't even use the term people pleaser because that's not, although I guess that is what it is. Mm-hmm. The way I think about it is I have a constant battle between what is selfish and what is self-care mm. or taking care of myself, standing up for myself. I have a really hard problem parsing those things. Mm-hmm. And I did not realize that until literally this year. <laughs> How did you realize it? Um, well, one is writing my memoir. Is I that went, done? It's I'm like literally any minute going to get the first round of edits and I'm very scared. Um, <laughs> uh, What's it called? Does it have a title I don't yet? have a title yet. Okay. Um, and it's one of the hardest things I've ever done for sure. Um, and creatively. And when I was right working on it, I was reading all my old diaries and looking at, you know, the themes of my life. And one of the big themes of the book is, you know, um, this negative automatic thinking that I have. And so much of my diary from college and around high, in high school, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life mm-hmm. I'm using language like, but what if I, I, I was saying, I want to be creative. I want to be an entertainer. I want to perform and make people laugh, but that feels like a selfish choice. That's, and it makes me want to cry Yeah, because I still struggle with that, which is like being for some reason, being in the spotlight felt like a moral failing mm. um, that only selfish people would want all the attention on themselves, but it's all I wanted. It's so sad, <laughs> but what, where do you think that idea came from? Well, you were raised Southern Baptist, right? Yeah, I was raised, uh, yeah, raised very Christian, um, big family, lots of big personalities in mm. my family. And I think I had to fight for attention a little. And so, um, I, I think that comes from it. I also think it comes from, um, a very traumatic experience when I was 12, when my dad, uh, confessed to like unethical inappropriate use of his client's funds that's Mm. the uh (laughs) that's the way we've agreed to talk about it because it's in the book i finally have like permission to talk about it what uh, i've mentioned it before on stuff but um what line of work was he in a lawyer um and uh that is a huge part of the book and it really like and obviously huge part of my life um what did he go to jail no um, it, the redemption story to me is like one of the best things mm-hmm. ever. I love it. And especially how it affected my mom and like everything that happened, but it was very difficult and I was 12 and I did not understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. And, but as from a 12 year old point of view of someone who was already a rule follower, I was very afraid of getting in trouble of being wrong not wrong like factually, but like morally wrong. Right. I, this was even, 
before religion was something I was into, this is part of my DNA. Like, so it's, I had a fertile ground to, so then you combine becoming a, I became fanatically religious. Um, I chose that. Nobody mm-hmm. forced that on me. I mean, it was given to me, but I took it. Right. And I drank it deep. Um, so that it was just a nice guide on how to be good. The New Testament really made a lot of sense to me. And then you, then my dad did had this thing happen, and he went from being a very dark and stormy person to a very happy person. And I felt that our lives improved after that change. Like after the confession? Mm-hmm. Like an immediate change. Like, And I look back and I'm like, wow, children are so intuitive. I mean, you feel mm-hmm. something felt wrong before. And I wasn't off on that. Something was wrong. I could tell. And then my dad fixed it. And can you can you say more about it just so we know what we're talking about? Okay, so um, he uh, he felt uh, he had gotten himself in this mess, um, and no one knew. And he was not sleeping. Um, felt he had no way out. Was thinking of killing himself. This is very Breaking Bad. Yeah. It's breaking good. I mean, it really is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he decided he would he would rather be in jail than live the way he was living. So he confessed, turned himself in. To the like authorities. Mm-hmm. Worked it out, um, paid the money back, had to start over completely in his career. Our whole lives changed. Mm-hmm. My mom's trajectory after that was she was a housewife before and after she um, s- – felt called to do something positive with her life and started a charity, um, basically a goodwill Mm -hmm. and a lunch program. I mean, she was basically helping the poor for the rest of her life after that point. And it was just a really crazy time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that fable in my mind was – if you tell the truth and you follow the rules, you'll be happy. I took it way too literally because mm-hmm. then like years later, I, you know, was unhappy and was like, I followed the rules. This isn't fair, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so that set up this internal sort of like, I have a very, very low threshold for feeling that I've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, the slippery slope argument really works on me like (laughs) you know if you tell one lie because that's how my dad sort of explained it to us if you tell one lie it will turn into a monster Mm -hmm. that's how it starts you know so and i think that couples with fundamentalist religion which is you don't don't let the devil in you know don't even let it in a little Mm -hmm. or a slippery slope. Next thing you know, you're going to be a crack whore. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, that's how I've behaved. And, you know, for me internally, it also turned into this selfish thing. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's funny. My boyfriend is one of the, I was just telling a friend of mine last night, he's truly one of the first people that has truly, other than my parents and my family who like sees me for who I am and knows me and loves me and cares about my well-being in a way. I'm going to start crying. Um I'm guys I'm hormonal. Um <laughs> Anyway, he 
the, the little example I give is a couple years ago, I had this journalist following me around for like a radio piece and she, it just was too much. And like, she was asking for too much access to my life. I be, it became clear that she didn't know what she was doing. And this mm. might've been a school project that she didn't <laughs> tell me was, was it? And I was, su- I think it might've been. Mm-hmm. And, and she was very sweet, but I was too busy and I just like couldn't handle it. Yeah. She was like asking me for that stuff that I didn't want to give. Like, She's like, maybe you could have a phone call with your dad and talk about politics. I was just like, no, I don't. I thought this was going to be you coming to a show and then we do one interview. Now you're asking for all this other stuff. And so I'm in my kitchen. She's in my apartment and I'm like, no. And I was like, I stood up to her and I kind of like threatened her. I was like, you know, at any moment I could just stop talking to you and um, you would not be able to finish your project. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't talk to people like that. I mean, I will in like a leadership role mm-hmm. in a work position and like when I'm I'm fighting the good fight, you know, and I have <laughs> right. a clear vision and it's, you know, but in this case, it felt that I was being very mean to her mm-hmm. and her face was like crumbling and I was like, but I was just, I had to stand up for myself and set a boundary. Yeah. It was really hard for me to do that. She leaves. Scott comes in and he was like, I was listening from the other room and I'm really proud of you. You did really well. You stood up for yourself and I was like, okay, good. Are you sure? And he's like, Yes. <laughs> 30 minutes later, he comes back in and he goes, I know what you're doing. I know you're sitting there just thinking about this, that you're a bad person because it was dead silent. I love him. I love him. (laughs) He came in. He was like, no, you didn't do anything wrong. You're not a bad person. Stop thinking that. I know that's what you're doing. And I was like, how did you know? He's like, your show is still paused. Like I was watching like Grey's Anatomy <laughs> yeah. or something. He was like, I'm going to unpause it. You're going to go back to your shows. That's so sweet. He was like, you're going to stop thinking about this. <laughs> that bitch is out of here. You know? <laughs> he was like, and it was like, oh, that was just a moment. It just, to it be was understood like to that. be understood and for it to be okay and mm-hmm. be accepted. And that he was like in the other room th- worrying about me. Yeah. Knowing so my own demons. And that's just a level. Anyway, that was a sort of sidetrack, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's been a real journey of like figuring this out about myself and being able to identify it and understand that no one is all good or all bad. Mm. And, uh, that I, you know, I am flawed and there are parts of me that are selfish and I'm just learning how to accept it and not linger on it for years. Do you you still feel that being an entertainer is a selfish pursuit? No. No, I mean, I do sometimes feel like when I was talking earlier about different types of fame, Mm -hmm. I have little categories in my head of like, well, that's selfish fame. Like reality show fame. Yeah, that's you just want to be famous for the sake of being famous and you don't want to actually create anything. You know, like in my head, I have all these rules, Mm -hmm. unspoken rules that I, you know, that I judge myself and others by and it will drive me insane sometimes if I get caught up in it, you know. Where do you think the idea that an entertainment is indulgent came from? Is it because the reward is fame? Um, I think, you know, it's probably really complex in my head now that I'm thinking about it. I'm sure some of it goes back to my relationship with money because of, you know, mm. my childhood experience, which was we went from being uh, rich, quote unquote, rich new rich to quote unquote like middle class lingering like teetering on lower middle like you know uh after that happened 
I, there were many times where I was like, are we okay? Like, did you, sorry, not to, not yeah, to no. take you on a tangent, mm. but did you guys stay in the same community? Mm, no, we had to move. Now, looking back, I mean, and immediately I realized once my mom started working with the homeless, it was like, okay, we we have it pretty, still have it pretty good. Right. But in the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia, where class, you know, is, it's like class is a weapon in middle school. And, you know, sometimes I would be teased for being rich. And then I didn't want that. I didn't want any attention on me for anything. Right. You know, when you're that age, you're just like, no, I just want to blend in. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be the center of attention for for any reason. Um, unless I'm like on stage in a play. That's the only way that it feels comfortable. <laughs> yeah, I totally um, get that. But then, yeah, so uh, we had we went we had a demotion, you know, and it was real, and it was in so many little subtle ways, you know, just come, you know, my parents would say things like, "Well, we don't know if we can do that this year," like you know, d- d- like it it was a big change, really big change, and when you're twelve, that is like really scary, and mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I was immediately like, this is good. We were too materialistic before. Like now we're better, more morally, you know, uh, pure people. And especially when my mom started down her road, it was like, now we're saving the world. Right. Service oriented. And we are humbling ourselves and, you know, all those things played into this idea. But with, I think... Feeling, you know, uh, pursuing a career in entertainment in my diaries around that time. Um, some of it was religious. It was like I should be pursuing like a a mission-based career like my mom. I should follow in her footsteps. I should go work with the poor. I had been to Honduras in college on a service trip and I was like, I should make this my life. I should help, you know, the Hondurans. Like that was like my one idea I had. Another idea was to be you know, a teacher or do something working with teens. And, but I had this overwhelming pull to write and to perform. It it was just all I could think about, but I felt like it was bad. And I don't know why, maybe part of it is because I deep down didn't know if I could do it. Mm-hmm. And so it was easier to say that it was bad. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm sure that was part of it too. But yeah, I felt, um, I really, really, really love the feeling that you get when you've done a good thing. And my therapist has helped me realize, she's like, you're supposed to feel good. It, and because I would go, well, that's selfish. Mm. I'm even feeling guilty for feeling good about going to a soup kitchen. Right. I will hide my volunteer work on social media because I don't, like I won't post about it because I don't want people to think I'm just doing it for the praise because now we've entered into this world of even when you've done something good on social media people will c- accuse you of virtue signaling oh this right term virtue signaling that. and it's how cruel have we gotten that like someone can't even go hey i really care about this cause and people go you're just virtue signaling i'm <laughs> like no i go to the fucking soup kitchen every week and i actually do something and there's a lot of accusing people of mm-hmm. because now we've entered into social media being a lie and a lot of it is a lie and it's mm. curated, you know, whatever. So social media is also really bad for this anxiety for me. It c- plays into it big time. Right. 
I think that's a thing that anyone, I imagine anyone in the public eye deals with. Yeah. That like, how do I not, I know I, this shouldn't affect me. How do I get a thicker skin? It, it's the fact that, I don't think people understand, like, if you got a thousand replies to something, which that's a high number. So let's say you got a hundred replies to a tweet mm-hmm. and 10 or 15 of those replies are mean. Any human being would only be thinking about right. those 10 it to 15 mean comments. And then, but sometimes you're getting nothing but mean. You're, you're a part of an attack. Like if they're coming after mm-hmm. you and it's, I've had that happen to me and I don't understand how any, I mean, it fucked me up. And I was the whole time like, these people are losers. They are really sad. I should feel empathy for them. And then an hour later I was like, I am fat and ugly and I should quit comedy. Like it got in. Mm-hmm. I read too much of it. And it's like, how do you not, it is like saying it to someone's face. Right. Right. And it's so disembodied when it's just like a rando online that it like, I don't know. I always think like it, it like seventh grade was a tough year for me mm-hmm. socially. And it just, I feel like I'm back in seventh grade. Yeah. Like it, it's those kids saying like bullying me essentially. Well, it feels. Yeah. And it does feel like I don't it, like, I have a tweet going crazy right now and I'm, I'm like, no, don't go anymore. Don't no more likes. <laughs> what one is it? It was just about Twitter, about Jack. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, like him, the whole Alex Jones thing. I was right. just talking about, well, you know, being a woman on Twitter, you constantly being fact checked by, you know, men. Um, but I will, I'm at the point now where I'm like, no, don't retweet it. Like, I'm really careful about what I tweet now. I mean, it really, I'll delete things a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because when Twitter started, it was like literally like an open mic. Say anything, try it out, spit it out. Talk about what you had just ate, you know, literally just talk about what you're doing. There's no pressure. Now it's truly like you need to think of it. You, Everyone should. That it is live during the Super Bowl halftime. Mm-hmm. That is the reach it could have. And you can't control it once it's out there. So like if you haven't that that's the standard we're holding people to. So if you tweet something and you make a mistake or you didn't realize it was ignorant or whatever, you are going to be held to the same standard as someone who was like giving a prepared speech on live television, (laughs) you know, right. That had a team of people helping them, you know, that's the standard you're being held to. And so, you know, you can opt out of that thinking or not, but it is, you have to at least be aware of it that like everything you say will be held against you (laughs) in the court of public opinion. I sometimes like I'll see a tweet that I like from a person who has who's either like a civilian or has fewer followers Mm -hmm. than I do or like someone I know personally Mm -hmm. and I like it, but like they, they have a smaller reach and I'll want to retweet it if it's political sometimes, but I will debate it because I'm like, I don't, what are you doing to them? Yeah. I don't want to bring assholes who follow me. And by the Mm -hmm. way, listeners, if you're listening, you're not assholes, but there are some assholes. I don't want to bring them into their timeline. It is like, there's a responsibility now. Like, you know, I'm very, I used to like quote tweet, uh, people, dudes who were being stupid to mm-hmm. me, um, and make fun of them. And I realized, like, I'm, I am to an extent encouraging attacks on mm-hmm. them. And even if they are a jerk, 
um, if they have 25 followers and there's some dude who lives in, you know, Indiana, like, is that the puni- proper punishment? Does the punishment fit the crime? Right. And I've tried to be more, way more careful about that. And I just engage less overall on these. I've had to limit it because it really does make me feel mm-hmm. sick. I always imagine, like, what if Oprah quote tweeted something negative that someone said to her like how would that look not yeah. to say that i'm that, that yeah. we are oprah but still yeah. you would look you'd look at it and you'd be like well, that's petty of oprah right was it worth it you right. know it's like uh you should be more confident in yourself that you don't need to like attack the- no i'll have back and forth sometimes with people but i just re- at reply them so it's right. not a signal boost of right. them if i really want to engage with someone and i kind of entered into a rule of like always be kind don't insult. Um, if I want to actually try and get them to hear me, if that's the point of what mm-hmm. I, you know, where they say something, I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? I try to be civil. Um, but there's times where I just lose my patience and I'll start, I'll be like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. You are a bad person. <laughs> you know who's really good at being diplomatic mm-hmm. and instructive on Twitter is Chelsea Clinton. Yeah. She doesn't put up a a lot of patience, you know? Yeah. She'll stand up for herself. She'll do some, sometimes she'll do some, uh, like clever comebacks, Mm -hmm. but usually she's just very like straightforward and like, no, well, she always seems unruffled. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, how could she be? And she's a human being. I'm sure she has her moments, but man, what she's been through. Yeah. You know, she's got to have a real sense of self. I wanted to ask you, um, what was your journey with religion? Like, did you continue? Yeah. Are you still religious? Um, no. Um, I, when I got to college, like so many others, um, I became aware of, I had already started to feel very frustrated by organized religion and far right Christian judgmental behavior towards gay people like this was in the late 90s so or or, this was i graduated high school in 96 so this was like you know when making fun of gay people was still very normal on tv and like but i just couldn't handle the whole you're going to hell thing i was like this is uh, unacceptable like there's no this goes exactly opposite of what jesus said i took it very seriously i took what the teachings of Jesus specifically very seriously. And I still do. And so it just didn't add up. And then as I get to college, I'm, you know, realizing other, uh, you know, that there's just too much worrying about who's going to hell and who's not. And those things weren't really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, mine was always, my idea of religion was always should have been just like, this is about love here and now and acceptance and grace. Um, and that's it. There's no, nothing else to it. Um, and I just couldn't make the two meet. I couldn't go to a church and feel uh, and not feel that way of this is all, all the ornamentation is really starting to piss me off. Mm -hmm. And then, so I just stopped going to church once I went to college. I I went to a couple like meetings of like their, you know, Christian group and I did not like how they came off. Mm -hmm. It felt too sanctimonious. And I was like, I can't. Um, And then I just went away from it. Um, 
I talk about this a lot in the book. Uh, I'm like, spoiler alert. But um, <laughs> No, it's a teaser. I and I, this, I don't know if this is going to be in the book because I feel like this is a journey I'm going on right now. Um, but I've been reading some Christian writers who are, uh, especially this one guy who put into words what I've always felt and I didn't realize like how based in scripture it was, like that Jesus was truly like anti-empire, anti death and you know anti-murder anti-war and i've always felt that he was about love you know all these things and uh i've read a couple books that have made me feel like like okay i still believe the fundamentals of this um the the message i'm the message of love and and the beatitudes and you know i still believe these things so am i a christian i don't know i don't because that is such a every person defines it differently in America. You know, it's like, well, if you, you're not a Christian unless you go to church every week, you're not a Christian. The only way to be a Christian, all you have to do is say, I believe in Jesus and you're a Christian. But what do you believe about Jesus? Mm -hmm. I don't know if I literally believe like every literal thing in the Bible. So I definitely don't. So that might make me a not a Christian. I don't know. So who was it that you read? Brian Zond, last name Z-A-H-N-D, and he has a book called Farewell to Mars and um, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Um, it's like a play on Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't know. There is some, some about one off. So a guy is, like John yeah. Edward, it was right. history, look it up. Um <laughs> But uh, his approach to scripture is um, like he believes that the the national anthem is a war hymn mm. and he doesn't sing it anymore. Um, he believes that like war is truly anti Christ and that America is Rome. Like if you look at the Bible, like mm. Rome was the empire and now America is the empire and the state kills and the state, you know. And that if Jesus was here now, he would be fighting against that. Mm -hmm. He would not be like, <laughs> so it's a real, he he really puts into perspective for me, like what this far right Christian nationalistic shit is. And yeah, it's such a perversion. Yeah. It's, and it's, and you know, he doesn't write in a way that's like, hey, this is what I feel. He bases it on like what's in the Bible. So I love reading that because then if I, I always feel like these days I'm preparing for some argument with someone <laughs> like is, back home That is, what and it, I've got it, my it like right tools now. ready. I've got like, okay, well, let's, oh, you want to talk about the Bible? Let's talk about the Bible. Let's talk about the story of the, he who throws the first stone, uh -huh. you know, what that story actually meant. It was a parable for execution, mm. for public execution, for, or for, for capital punishment. Right. Um, oh, right. Like he, stoning someone to death. Yeah. That stoning, you know, he talks a lot about scapegoating, um, that it's what the group does to feel united. They pick someone, mm -hmm. you know, so we've got all kinds of scapegoats now. We've got immigrants. Yeah. We've got Muslims, trans people, you know, it's really so blatant and it's, it drives me insane when I see Christian people, um, going opposite of that and like 
this whole far right Christian evangelical mess, like how these people are voting for Trump, you know, it's driv- it's really been fascinating to me. So it's actually drawn me back into my spirituality in a way mm-hmm. of trying to understand all the people I grew up with. Like I talk a lot about this in my stand up now, like all the people I grew up with, how different they feel than me, not all, but some, how far apart we ended up ideologically. And I, cause I have actually always thought that the Bible made me liberal you know, that's some liberal shit in there. Like, mm-hmm. the, you know, it is, you know, whatever you've done unto the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've also done unto me. That is some, this is my joke. That is some lefty ass libtard snowflake <laughs> shit right there. <laughs> you know, and so I, in invest, investigating all of this, I've read, you know, some things and found people who are like minded that are, that still appreciate. Like, I think faith is beautiful. I think faith in something bigger than you is a gift and it is given to you um by an adult usually um and and you know faith is something that has really helped me in my life like it's helped me pursue a career in comedy to take leaps of faith as someone who is very risk averse and afraid of making a mistake faith has taught me how to overcome those fears when I look back on it, you know, Mm. I'm not as powerless to these negative thoughts as I always thought I was. Right. There's a tweet of yours that I got to find that I want to ask you about. And then we'll take, uh, some questions that people sent in on Patreon and on Twitter, but let me just find this. Uh, you said, I think there is a blurring between what a comedian says on stage and how a comedian treats fellow performers at their place of work, which includes the stage. Sometimes I feel stuck. How do I defend creative freedom while also demanding safety and respect from my coworkers? Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what you're thinking about? Yeah, I'm. it was specifically, I mean, it's something I've been thinking about a lot in this conversation of free speech Mm -hmm. and the me too movement, like those have combined in the comedy community. And I find it very interesting because it is kind of a conundrum. Like if somebody is on stage and I'm not talking about somebody being on stage, going, going up and saying bigoted stuff, jokes that are like racist or Mm -hmm. whatever, or sexist. I, I'm offended by that. I don't particularly, I may not think it's funny, but I don't feel threatened by it. Um, I'm talking about like when a comedian introduces you in a demeaning way. Are you talking? We, we like, can say because it was public. Yeah. Arden Marine yeah. wrote something on Refinery29 um, about being introduced in a really sexist way yeah, by a comedian. I, who, but he was mm-hmm. but he was doing a parody of a morning he, show. He thing, was right? trying to, you know, from what I read, it gathered he made a mistake and then he just like doubled down on it and thought it was funny. And she she wasn't prepped for that. Yeah. And like, so it's brought up this conversation about intros and, um, you know, and then this thing happened in Montreal where this like YouTube comedian like went off on during his set and the other comedians who were all non-white men mm-hmm. non-white straight men um and he was like racism comedy shouldn't be about gender or race you know and he was kind of shitting on the other performers while he was at the microphone mm-hmm. so i'm talking about moments like that where you are being talked about by people on stage you know introduced in a way that's demeaning where now you've brought me into your act right and, and Arden felt like, well, now she's coming on stage to do her comedy, but the audience is just thinking about her breasts. Yeah. And in in your mind, you know, I had a conversation with some comedians about this after that happened. And 
you know, there were, everyone at the table had a different opinion. And, um, you know, one person was like, well, she shouldn't have written an essay. She should have just spoken to him directly and not made that public. And then someone else was like, yeah, but this is a, is she was talking about just like, this is a, a phenomenon that happens to every female comic. And I think she just was trying to highlight the problem mm-hmm. and what it feels like, you know, and my thing was like, were those both women? One was a man. The, the first was a man. Right. And the second was, a, um, actually the second person was gender non-binary. Um, <laughs> I don't know how they, uh, identify specifically, but, um, so anyway, they, uh, my thing was like, look, if you want to try and make an ironic joke, you need to bring me in on that. You need to tell me what you're going to do. Ask me if it's okay. And then I know how to roll with it. But the being blindsided and being talked about like you're just like a whole, I mean, that's not ideal. And, but it is freedom of you know it is the stage and i would never want to tell a comedian you can't do this joke i i am not i am a you know a feminist deep you know and i'm uh an sjw like whatever (laughs) whatever the term is i'm that but i will never tell a comedian you cannot say this or that on stage i could critique and say i don't like i don't think that's funny but I would never tell someone because I do think that people need to be t- able to take risks on stage and make mistakes. And and for me to think I'm above all that is foolish. You know, I've definitely said jokes that now would be considered inappropriate. Not not a lot, but there's things I think back. But things and I'm change like, so fast. Yeah. yeah. And it's like that language was not inclusive, you know, or or. But each comedian is different, and I would never say to someone, you can't say that. But when you bring me into it personally, it's shitty, you know? And that's the part I'm saying. is like, how do I stand up for myself? And now the conversation has bled into green room behavior, where comedians, a lot of comedians who are mad about the Me Too thing, you know, or like, they think it's gone too far, you know, or I only can't say anything. They're also talking about the green room. They don't want to have to watch what they say in the green room because that's the round table. That's the the guys hanging out and I should be able to, you know, that's riffing. I should mm. be able to riff. I'm like, but if your riffing is making me feel unsafe and then you combine it with potential behavior of actually touching me inappropriately or with these things have, I mean. Has, have these things happened to you? I haven't had from a comedian. No, <laughs> um, I've been assaulted by another person um, uh, in entertainment. Yeah, like a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I've had borderline creepy. You know, don't hug me that long and like rub your hand up and down my back. Like, is it something I'm gonna like write a fucking medium article about? No, <laughs> but like it, it's. But also, there's so many men who I know have done things to people who I'm in a green room with regularly, Mm -hmm. you know, and so I'm now on high alert. And now that person is now making a joke about female comics in the room. And I'm here. I can hear it. And I know that this person has done something inappropriate. Now I don't feel safe. And I've been told by people on Twitter after that tweet, like, what are you talking about? Your safety isn't in question. And it's like, you don't know. 
I'm giving all this context now. I know right. my tweet was vague. Um, but that's all I was talking about was like, how do I parse between standing up for myself and other women and defending freedom of speech, which right. I do take very seriously. I think there's an assumption that if you're a woman who's just standing up for, especially in comedy, if you're a female comic who's going, hey, I don't want to be treated this way, that you don't like free speech. And that is the dumbest correlation. It's like there's they're not the same thing. <laughs> you know, like So I think there is this attack on comedy and free speech coming from non comedians. Yes. Um, you know, like and now I'm conflating two things, but like the James Gunn thing, which mm-hmm. I personally do not think he should have lost his meaning. I mean, those jokes were gross, but like, yeah, but also, but they were clearly attempts at jokes a long time ago. He had deleted them. You know, I don't uh, know. yeah. And, and the people trying to get him had a ulterior motive. Oh yeah. Yeah. But so I feel like there's a lot of non comedians who are like, yeah, who have all these arguments against certain kind of jokes and mm-hmm. and it's it's usually motivated. Are do you think that there are people in the comedy world who are also trying to attack the free speech? I have seen some things that I'm like, I wouldn't say it like that, you know, on Twitter or something. Like I saw someone post a list of things that if you do you are like part of the problem was one mm. of these, like if you do the following, you're part of the problem. And some of it was legit. Like if you, you know, um, some of the things I'm talking about, but on the list was like, if you make a joke about your dick or jerking off, you know, like it was getting into like, uh, that seems broad, a little <laughs> too broad of a brush. Like, right. Can a man like they were in in some of the lists, they were suggesting that a male comic should never talk about sex because that could make a woman in the audience feel unsafe. And that was too far for me. I'm mm. like, come on. Like, you know, you, you can't you don't want to be told you can't talk about topics. Right. So don't tell another comedian what they should be able to talk about. Um if they do it successfully and it's funny, who cares? And if they're doing it from an angle that like, I particularly don't like it when comedians do jokes that are, I, and this is such a buzzy term, but like punching down mm-hmm. only because sometimes those jokes feel like, Oh, you just don't know. Oh, you didn't get the memo that like, like that trans people are human beings. Like, <laughs> right. you know, and it, how does this even affect you? Because I don't like jokes that are so broad like that anyway. I want to hear about you. I want to know, like Bill Burr has a joke about the internal voice in his head. It's like a joke about toxic mas- masculinity, basically. And where he, it, but I think some people would say this is a anti-gay joke, mm-hmm. but he's talking about how, why can't I watch it? I'm paraphrasing. Why can't I watch a sunset without an internal voice going, you're gay. And he's, I think he used, he might've used the slur. I don't know. But like, that's really funny. And it's a comment on like, why can't a straight guy enjoy a fucking pretty sunset? Mm -hmm. And why is that considered gay? And like, that's Bill Burr. I've seen him do jokes that I find very offensive. I'm like, dude. And you know that I've seen him in live settings doing that. I'm like, well, maybe he'll figure that out. You know, and he he's he's up there going, "Oh, people are going to blog about this." <laughs> and you know, so he's self-aware. Um so that someone like him, it's like, you know, we need to 
at least be sophisticated enough to analyze what is the intention of the joke. Mm -hmm. And I understand that intent, you know, some people are like, like, I do believe like the N word, like a white person should not say that on stage, you know, but if you can, you, I'm not going to say you can't, but don't think it's going to go well. (laughs) Right. Like, don't you be know, surprised. Like, don't be back. surprised yeah. when people get angry. And if you don't know where the line is, how can you play with it? Mm-hmm. If you've stepped way over it and everyone's like, dude, we we are not doing that anymore. Like, people aren't cool with it. Like, I perform at a ton of colleges and people always say, oh, college kids are so sensitive. They can't take a joke. And I'm like, well, that's not been my experience. But I also don't do that really super edgelord type mm-hmm. comedy. Um my thing is if a college kid is offended by something you're saying, get ready because in 10 years, right. Cause it'll they're at the be forefront. Uni- right. They're the forefront. We, when we were in college, we were sensitive too. Mm-hmm. you know, it, it, my thing with college kids is like, it's not that they're PC. It's they're 17 years old. They're seven. The ones that are coming to see you are the younger ones. Cause the older kids have lives and they're <laughs> drinking and they're not going to the, see the entertainment that the college provides. Unless it's like a huge star. And they're really young. They're like virgins. They they don't want to hear about your advanced sex moves. It scares <laughs> them. They've never seen stand-up a lot of the times. They're nervous because it's stand-up is really raw and intimate and awkward. And it's an adult up there yelling at them. And, <laughs> you know, they're nervous about if I laugh at the wrong thing, will the kids from the hall... Oh, not, God, you, this is bringing back being young. Yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> it's so called being young. You know, yeah. like, if you don't like performing for a young audience, good on you. Give me the gigs. It's easy money. I mean, oh my God, it's, I, forgot I get a- paid more to do one college show than I do for a whole weekend at a club right now. I totally like, forgot. That's my rate. You know, like, right. so, so why would I, you know, I, and I don't feel that my, my comedy has been dumbed down or I've gotten so good from doing colleges. I, I feel like really powerful right now because I can perform anywhere. Mm-hmm. I can, you know, my, my goal as a comedian is to make people feel good, but, think too so i'm trying to get away from being a people pleaser on stage though i'm trying mm-hmm. to stand for my own opinions and not be worried that somebody's getting offended is that something that concerned you a lot in the past no it only started with a stupid election <laughs> right because <laughs> it's 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 men usually mm-hmm. who are mad that i'm even admitting that i'm liberal on stage or even i barely talk about politics but i circle right the culture i circle like what does it feel like to be an american i'm figuring it out like Mm -hmm. i had shows this weekend in la jolla and it was a rich white crowd older a lot of military and they fucking loved it and i was like i'm i'm getting i'm getting in the zone i'm figuring out how to do this because i don't want I even joke on stage, like, I think people are afraid that comedians are going to go around the room and be like, who did you vote for? <laughs> and who did you vote for? And then be like, fight, you know? Yeah. Um. So I've been getting over that fear of, like, offending pol- politically different people in the audience, you know? Sometimes as a female comic, you're up there and, you're, and you can just feel it. Mm-hmm. You're like, there's people in here who just hate me because I'm a woman. And I can feel it's a different type of feeling. It's subtle, but you can tell. And what do you do when you feel that? I, I, when I, as I get better at comedy, I get bolder and I just bully through it. You know, I not bully through it. I push through it. Mm -hmm. Um, um, and sometimes I'll 
if someone heckles me, I'm getting better at like putting that down in a way that's still me, but firm, you know? It's tough. I mean, as a podcaster, I am sort of working on on a, a similar personal, I don't know, goal, journey, whatever, challenge of like, I'm just going to say what I want to say and what I think is right because it's important to me regardless of the reaction as opposed to like the goal is to avoid anyone ever saying something negative to me. Yeah. Because I don't have a political show, but a Kate and I don't talk about politics that much, but it's like, it's too important to me right now to not talk about it. But anytime I talk about it at all, I get a reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And it's even if you just even hint at it, I mean, now it's like every statement is bold. Everyone's like, you know, if you're just like ban straws, now there's someone going, well, why do you hate the disabled community? Mm -hmm. They need straws. And it's like, you can't, you, it's not that you can't say anything. It's just that Everything is so complicated now right. and there people are on your ass about yeah. every little detail that um, it's scary to express. It is – and this is new. This is not – well, America has been America. Right. You know, but it's social with media, social media, yeah. it is new in this feeling of that there's somebody nipping at your heels all the time and you – I I feel like we're going to come around – you know, where we're moving, a lot of people are moving back to like, I'm I'm going to be me and I'm going to say what I want mm-hmm. and I'm not going to worry about the reaction. It's hard though. It's really it is, hard. Yeah. It's like a discipline. Um, okay. Let's take some questions that uh, listeners sent in on Twitter and on Patreon. I'm on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Allison Rosen is where you go. There's different uh, reward levels and you can get bonus episodes, behind the scenes content, all sorts of fun stuff. And also uh, you have priority access to submit your questions. Okay. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you so thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Okay, Dale Fournier asks, is she going to do more episodes of her loner at Coyote Wolf Creek podcast? <laughs> yeah, so I actually don't know. Let me look really quick. I don't listen to any podcasts, <laughs> but I subscribe to yours. Well, thank you. <laughs> Just so you more some. people should do that. If you would like to subscribe to my podcast and not listen to it, iTunes.com slash Allison Rosen is where you go for that. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. It's not up. I have to actually get on that. Okay. So um, Loner at Kyle Creek is a, a really weird, funky podcast that I was doing. Um, it's set in the future. It's me alone in a cabin in the woods talking about the now. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about 2018-ish. And it's a, like a post-apocalyptic hybrid scripted hybrid talk. Um, it's a little weird thing that I do and that I love. But I had to take a break because I got too busy with my book and travel and stuff. But I recorded a little teaser episode because something is coming. Uh, and I'm really excited about it. So actually, I should get that posted soon. <laughs> well, this will air Monday. Okay, yeah. So, so. Now it, it'll be up soon okay um and it it's a it'll tell you it'll give you a hint on what's coming exciting 
Tracy Metcalf, does she miss her podcast with Nikki? Sometimes, yeah. That's part of why I started my podcast because I needed a place to dump all my thoughts because I pulled away from social media where I used to go and dump every thought I had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted a place to comment on what was going on in the world in a free way. And that's what Nikki and I did. So I miss, I definitely miss that. And whenever I go back and do, like I did her serious uh Mm -hmm. radio show it was just like we fall right back into it you know we always just can it's one of those friendships we can just fall right back into it it's always great uh okay on twitter schmoo wants to know is there another album in the works everyone should listen to chrysalis am i pronouncing that wrong yeah no 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 okay especially p in a grocery store Mm -hmm. it makes me laugh so hard schmoo i know i know (laughs) you know schmoo i love you schmoo um uh yes there is another album in the works actually but i don't know when it's gonna happen and i might be doing something like different with it a concept Mm. type thing i haven't figured it out yet we're in talks so yes i have been i haven't put out new stand-up in a really long time and so i have a lot of material that i need to find places for and all those things are coming i'm very excited there will be televised stand-up as well which i can't talk about Oh, that is. Of course, that makes me want to guess. That's exciting, uh, though. Yeah, I can't. I can't say what it is. Has a it been couple things. Yet? No, I have a couple things coming, which I'm really excited about. Shmoo. Finally, that's very exciting. Yeah. Shmoo also wants to know: Are mm. you still traumatized by the lizard tail? I am. I saw this. Oh it was my god! Well and you know, it's one of those things. Always, whenever I post something gross like that, I'm like, I know I'm putting this in other people's heads, but it's almost like the ring where I have to show the video <laughs> to someone, or I'm gonna die. Um, yeah, I had a lizard came into my house as I was leaving the other day and I was like well you can't be in here because I'll never sleep again if I think there's a critter in the house <laughs> right and so I'm trying to get him out and I'm using like a Swiffer broom and he's under this little rug and all of a sudden like his tail pops out I thought I had cut it off mm-hmm. apparently now I've been told right they, they drop, drop them as a defense and the tail like s- like squirmed Slithered, yeah. and like like danced it was almost like a dance for truly like five minutes and i'm like how does it do it i was just screaming and there's like little blood marks on the floor and like the lizard is like hiding from me at this point i had to get him out i finally got him out i had to like you found him yeah i actually he was was perfect he was trapped between the rug and the like slide the grip mat thing Uh and so i could just lift the rug Uh and take him out and he ran away um so he's fine, but I was like so disgusted. I left the tail there and the whole laundry room like ripped apart for 24 hours because I couldn't deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, I had to like push it out and clean it up and like, but it was so gross. The video of it is on my Twitter. Um, you can go watch it if you want to get grossed out. Uh, but there's like a lot of critters right now. There's spiders everywhere. Yeah, I, I read about your dead mosquitoes. I can't. Oh, the dead mosquitoes happened in a condo for a comedy club. Oh. Uh, that was upsetting. But <laughs> oh, sorry. Now, not to perpetuate gender roles, mm-hmm. but I would have invited my boyfriend oh, over to so deal with it. He's out of town. Oh, and that's, that's why when I'm they having all. Yes, they know that he's gone. <laughs> um. So yeah, he would have been. I would have run out. I would have been like, "You deal with this. I gotta go." Yeah. <laughs> Okay, Jessica would like to know, where does she shop for her glasses? Oh, so I I upgraded to fancy and I went to this place called like Go 
Gogosh Optique or something like something like that. Fancy name in Silver Lake. And I was reading reviews, and they were like, whatever her name was, like Wendy is the glasses whisperer. You have to go (laughs) work with her, you know. And I go in there, and she's like, "Welcome." And she looks at my face. She talks to me about my life. She's like, "I'll be right back." She comes out with a tray of selections. She's like curated. Wow. And we went and tried on back and forth. Did I you got, feel like she got it? She did. She she actually, these are sunglasses mm-hmm. that she popped out. She was like, I think these would work as regular frames on you. I got two pairs and a pair of sunglasses. It was so much money because these were like designer. But if you wear glasses and I'm good at, I don't lose, knock on wood, I don't lose my glasses or sunglasses. Um, they're last for years. You know, it's worth it in my mind to have something unique and not you know Mm -hmm. um but i have like these are my chunky ones and i have like a little more delicate frame in my sunglasses also but yeah i that's where i've gone now in la before i did warby parker which they're great too Mm -hmm. but they're a little more standard wait what is this like lala shoptique it's like gagosh optique or something like that (laughs) like i can't remember the name of it (laughs) well they're very cute uh Ed Morris would like to know, is Nikki and Sarah Live available on the web somewhere? It is, because I had to go download. I was like making a little reel for this pitch I was doing, and I went and bought all the episodes on iTunes. You can buy them um, HD, and we do get royalties whenever you buy them, See, which is there you go, you great. Guys. So, go buy them. Yeah, you can watch all of it on iTunes. I don't know if there's anywhere else to see it, but I know that's where you can get them. And unfortunately, they do cost money. But um, we also have some clips on YouTube that mm. are probably not supposed to be there. But so <laughs> <laughs> Nobody has said anything. They don't care. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you guys for the questions. Let's now do Just Me or Everyone. Sometimes I ponder on something Okay, this is where people write in with things they think or do. They wonder, is it just me? Is it everyone? And we weigh in. Mrs. B. Harper says, just me or everyone. I will never understand the necessity of bleeping the word whole when it, w- when it is preceded by the word ass. We all know what you said. Isn't the swear word, in fact, ass? And then uh, oh, at West Wing Weekly hashtag podcast crossover. So maybe they were talking about mm. it too. Um, I'm trying to think if I've ever noticed that they bleep whole. Yeah, they do. Interesting. Do they, they don't bleep, bleep because ass? Because ass could be um, a donkey. Right. <laughs> I don't know. That there, is weird. There was, I can't remember what it was when I was writing on Nikki's show, Not Safe. Um, there was some little, like, it was like, you could say, you could say, uh, dick in reference to a dick, but you couldn't call someone a dick. Interesting. Like that might not have been at Nikki, but we were talking about that right. was one thing. Like they they'll do like it depends on how you use it, and like I think bleeping at this point they only bleep part of the word, mm-hmm. and you can hear it. It's like yeah. are we right pretending we don't? It's like we a didn't wink. know what that was. Like when <laughs> it's like beep. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know. Right. Mr. Tamp, oh, Mr. Tampon says, <laughs> raw broccoli can suck a dick. Here, chomp on this chunky, dry ass, dirty flavored tree shrimp. 
bitch, please. <laughs> Tree shrimp. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, how do I feel about Rob Rockley? I'm actually, if you have some kind of dip or something, mm-hmm. I'm okay with Rob It has Rockley. to have something on it. Yeah. It I gets do... a dry mouth feel if you don't mm-hmm. put anything on it. But like if I'm at a party and there's raw broccoli, I'm probably going to forgo it because I feel like you get little tiny green bits yes, in your teeth. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. If you're in front of a crudite plate, what do you go for? Carrot and cucumber. Mm-hmm. Maybe jicama if it's got oh, yeah. jicama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I won't go for what the celery. What fancy crudite are you <laughs> yeah. engaging with? I just eat the crudite or your glasses shop. Uh, James Leroy Wilson says, I assume a romantic relationship between the magician and the number one assistant. And if there isn't, it's weird. Well, my dad's best friend, uh, he unfortunately, he passed away, but was a professional magician we were very close with their family, professional magician, and his wife was the assistant. Mm. So I think yeah. that's right. I think it makes sense. I don't see a lot of magic these days. No, I'm not a magic person. Right. I get I get too caught up in how did they do that mm. and it makes my brain hurt. Right. But good magic can be fun. Yeah. But I like do they even have assistants nowadays? Because I feel like I Chris guess for Angel some thing, yeah, I think probably, right. I think it depends on what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. depends what if it's like traditional magic or mm-hmm. extreme David Blaine mind style. illusion. <laughs> yeah, lasagna for brains. Have a dog that barks at TV doorbells. So I have developed an involuntary reaction to shush my dog when I hear a doorbell, even when he's not around. <laughs> That's yes, funny. I can imagine stuff like this. Um, <laughs> my son has now taken to whenever Wendy barks, he goes. No, no. Aww. <laughs> no, no. So bark. No, no. Bark. No. It's very cute. Oh, my God. That's very so cute. cute. I hope he never He's stops. He's so cute. He's very cute. <laughs> Bruised by Dawn says, I can never move as fast in dreams as when awake, especially when it comes to a fight or flee situation. I actually have weird dreams where I'm running. It's very exhilarating. I'm running so fast that I'm almost flying. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I conversely have dreams where I need, like there's some kind of emergency and I need to call someone and I can't get, I can't type mm-hmm. the number correctly. Yeah. Or I have dreams where I'm driving and the steering wheel just breaks off. Oh, that's scary. That's I have driving dream. dreams where I don't know how to drive mm-hmm. or there's something wrong with the car and I'm getting in, you know, I'm hitting things and I'm like, it's not my fault. You know? Right. Um, have you had the phone one? No, I've never had the phone one. I have flying. I um, I have. I have so many fucking recurring dreams. I have a really rich nightlife while <laughs> I'm in bed. It's crazy. Patrick Curtis says, "When I blow up an inflatable pool toy, I count each breath. Similarly, when I see a lightning flash, no matter how far away, I immediately start counting in my head. I don't do this, but I guarantee other people do this. Oh yeah, we get counting I- ones a lot." I do counting, um, but I can't remember what I do it with. But I do count at random for random things, mm-hmm. um, just to sort of like keep the time, or you right. know, just to like keep my brain occupied. I don't know. Lately, when I'm trying, I like when I go up steps, I'll count. Yes, mm-hmm. a lot of people do that. Or if they're watching a movie and someone is underwater, they count. <gasps> oh, that's just sounds like just scary. to see how how long they're underwater. Yeah. I guess um, I count. Lately, when I'm trying to fall asleep and I can't sleep, I'll try to count and thinking it'll like relax my mind, but it doesn't. I just all of a sudden I'm like, well, now I'm in the hundreds and I'm still wide awake. Well, you know what works sometimes for me? It used to 
um, is I subtract from 100 by 13. It's really, oh, it's challenging. You won't even get hard. Yeah. You won't even get past like three times at first because then you start to memorize it. And like, right. It, but in the beginning, you'll, you will fall asleep so fast. I'm going to try, try that. Thank you. Yeah. Nina Hartley says, it drives me crazy when I watch someone driving in a movie and they take their eyes off the road. Me Usually too. Usually to look at a passenger for what? Yes, I know. Yes, I always get nervous it makes me them. so like, I like, oh my God, they're about to hit some, there's a twist right. coming in the plot where they, yeah, but no. Sometimes there is that. Well, you know, I, uh, yesterday I discovered, I never thought about how they film those without you know where it's real right when they're driving and i saw like out driving around in atwater village the rig like they have a car on the back of a trailer that's being pulled around by like a truck Mm -hmm. and they've got cameras and lights all around the camera and so they're really moving but they're not driving right i never knew that i like and i work in hollywood but i never (laughs) and i saw it i was like that how they do that you thought they were actually really driving <laughs> yeah i was like oh they must be going really like i never thought or right you know someone is I, I just was stupid about it and i was like oh yeah that's cool now i know it's magic jason dick says just me or everyone under the sea means under the floor of the ocean it doesn't mean the intended in the sea oh i never really thought about i never that. thought about that like in the earth's crust right (laughs) but i know that when i was on the adam carolla show he was talking some song where something was buried under a tree and in my mind it was like someone dug up the dirt under a tree buried i think it was like a diary buried under a tree or something Mm -hmm. like that meant under the ground but i think under the tree just meant like in the shade of the tree yeah in the shade of it yeah so that's my similar one Mm -hmm. with that and lastly ed morris says It is really hot in Washington, D.C., so I walk from shady spot to shady spot from the metro to my office. Just me or all commuters in hot spots. I am uh, very, like, oh, my God, I'm having a colossal brain fart. I'm blaming, I'm pregnant, and it's making me stupid. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I can be really dumb about not standing in the shade. Like, I'll be standing right in the sun and and be squinting. But I thought you were super pale and you need to, like, remember that? Oh, oh, yes. Instagram (laughs) thing? Yeah. I am super pale. No, but you're not. You're Elvira behind. You're not, though. You're like. (laughs) I'm pretty pale. You're pale, but, like, you're not, like, sickly pale. You have, like, rosy cheeks. Thank you. Glowing. Thank you very much. Uh, And, And your husband and son are not, like, tan they're like regular looking like there wasn't even that much difference that was really people are so ridiculous yes i posted a an instagram story you know what it was i was wearing a different lipstick that day and i think (laughs) it like highlighted how pale i was or something but and i was wearing black which i often do and yeah the guy was like could you please i forget could you please get a tan and leave elvira behind or something yeah so i can match my husband and something like that yeah yeah uh Ah, the my internet. husband who's had like tons of skin cancer because he's so fair <laughs> right but yeah okay yeah. that's so funny uh i do that i i stay in the shade yes yeah, i smart. try to scurry along under the veranda of, or you know under the awnings right. of the stores and stuff yeah yeah that's what i'm saying like yeah. i'll be complaining when there's a spot of shade really close to me and it's like mm-hmm. just step into people, yeah. people are always pulling me into the shade mm-hmm. and i appreciate it 
Sarah Schaefer, it was so nice catching oh up gosh, with thank you. Thank you. I didn't even ask you anything, but I guess that's, that's the nature of it. That's not what this show's it. about. I yeah. Know. You got to listen to other episodes to find out about yeah. <laughs> the Thursday episode, which is a panel of us. Um, nice. Tell everyone where they can find you, what they should look mm-hmm. out for. Sarah Schaefer One is my social media on Instagram, Twitter, etc. Um, and it's S C H A E F E R. Yeah. Like the beer, no relation. <laughs> uh, Sarah Schaefer One. And uh, yeah, I mean, the big thing I have coming that I can say is my book. It's coming out next summer. <laughs> so it'll be a while, but I'll be promoting the hell out of it and there'll be pre-orders and all that stuff. And um, yeah, I'm on the road a lot. I post my shows online and you can join my email list and all the things. All the things. And check out your podcast. Yeah, Loner at Koi Wolf Creek. There's 15 episodes right now. There'll be like a 16 episode like mini teaser for what I will be calling season two of the show. Exciting. Yeah. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for listening. Follow me on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's Twitter feed at A-R-I-Y-M-B-F. Follow me on Instagram where you can insult my skin tone uh, <laughs> at Allison Rosen. Um, I have a book out, Tropical Attire and Courage and other phrases that scare me. And if you go to my website, alicefromrosen.com, there's many places to click that'll take you right to Amazon where you can get it available in all formats. Thank you again, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks so much Thanks for, for listening, you guys. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Alice and Rosen show?